We're going to look today at Mark chapter 9 and verses 2 through 10. The Revelation from the Holy Mountain. Let's stand as we honor God's Word one more time. Stand one more time to honor God's Word. And read these verses together. Verses 2 through 10. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before him Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters or tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for this sword of your spirit the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, that as we come to it, it comes to us. As we read it, it speaks to us. As we need help, your glorious Holy Spirit is already at work within our hearts and our lives, our circumstances, our minds, that we might hear the illuminated truth of your word. Breathe out upon us, Lord, from this inspired text. And may we come from this place blessed and encouraged and illuminated by the message you give us. As the prophet of old said, open our eyes, Lord, that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. We see some Beautiful things here. This is a common text. People read it. I've read it so many times. I can't tell you the number of times I've read through this text and read past this text as it kind of, uh, I thought, okay, that's, that's really interesting. Not sure what it all means, but that's very interesting. 
seems pretty simple, pretty, pretty, pretty cut and dry. Um, but it is a text that truly is transitional. And I think we're going to see that as we go through this today in our study. This is taking place in Caesarea Philippi. Seems that Jesus hasn't moved far from where he began this journey into Tyre and Sidon, all the way back in the earlier chapters, several chapters back, and we've entitled this um, The Gentile Campaign, as he goes into the land of the Gentiles. And very surprisingly, to his disciples and those Pharisees that were following him, taking notes, very, very careful notes. You know, there were note takers. And um, it's, good, it's a good idea to take notes. They were taking notes to try to see if they could kill and how they could kill Jesus. You don't want those people following you, right? You know, they can go and follow somebody else. But taking these um, very, very um, intense notes in order to challenge him. We see them coming out several occasions. We just saw that with the, um, the feeding of the 4,000 people, the 4,000 Gentiles, Jesus' Gentile banquet. And as he travels, we see them with him. We see the opposition right there. We also see his disciples with him. And we should not forget that the events that take place, have taken place thus far, are events that took place over approximately an 18-month period. This journey that we're in right now, this campaign of the Gentiles, is something that's been going on for a number of weeks. Um, and as a result, he's gone up to Tyre, he's gone over to Sidon, he went down through Caesarea Philippi, he went into the Decapolis, um, then he turned around and came back up to Caesarea Philippi as he is now with his disciples <coughs> and asking them on the way. Serious questions being asked now. He's outlined specifically that he is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be tried. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And he's going to be raised from the dead. Remember that? And Peter, the insightful one. And clearly it was an insight. It was a, it was a, a revelation, Jesus said, given to him by his father. When Jesus said to his disciples as they were walking along, who do men say that I am? And they you know, put forth several different ideas of who he might be, or who they heard he was. And he said, well, who do you think I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, according to Matthew and Luke. And in Mark's gospel, he says, you are the Messiah. Messiah, the same kind of response. The same, basically, it's the same statement. The others clarified, just expanded just a little bit more. And so with her first time, they hear this statement said outwardly, you are the Messiah. And interestingly, as Matthew records this, he says, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Where you see that incarnate observation. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see both the person of Jesus and you see his, his as an accompanying um, 
presence of the second member of the Trinity, the Word of God. And so you see within him this uniqueness in that he is both divine and human. That's an insight that they were kind of wondering about. Who is this person? Is he just this really, really powerful man? Does he, he have insights as a man? Does he have powers as a man? And he is giving them more and more close, close uh, counter instructions and, and demonstrations of his person, that it's, he's not like everybody else. He's not just a really powerful man. He is a presence in him, the presence of both of a very particularly righteous man, but also the divine is within him also. And we can't forget that. We, we never should give, let ourselves not be very <clears throat> attentive to the revelation of the nature of Christ. We see that when the demon came out of um, the man in the temple. One of, their first, one of the first uh, miracles Jesus performed. And the demons, what did they call him? We know who you are. You're Jesus, the Son of the living God. I can see something that, you know, of course, we're the weakest group in the, we're the weakest people in the group. We think we're the number one most insightful and everything. We're the weakest in the group. We can't really see things spiritually like demons can. <laughs> so as a result, we make assumptions and try to make assumptions. But we see this rising of this incarnate nature again and again and again. And we see it here as well. And so in this text today, as he is coming from that place, he is, it says that after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. And he went and he led them up a high mountain. And they were all alone. Well, there's a lot of information right in that one little line. The mountain they're talking about that's common to this region is Mount um, Habor. It's uh, the tallest mountain in this region. Um, some people say it's a different mountain. They have, there's a lot of views of what this mountain was, and so they, they accuse some other mountains, and there's other ones listed um, in, you know, in, geog in the geography of the land. But this was the highest mountain, and it didn't have anybody living on it. The other, all the other mountains, there were people living, and even at the top of the mountains. So when he says they were all alone, it was obviously a place that was remote, a place that was not inhabited by anyone, because he wanted to be alone with his disciples. And we see this. Uh, let's, yeah, so we, if you look just for a moment, I, I think there's some clarification that's important to see. We've done this each time. We've um, looked at a text throughout the Gospel of Mark, and that is the synoptic parallels. You know, what does Luke say? What does Matthew say? And so again, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1 through 9. Very similar. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Then he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. 
Paul, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And we see in Luke's parallel, chapter 9, verse 28 through 36. Again, similar and some dissimilarities. Luke 9, 28 through 36. About, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the presence of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor take, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring in fulfillment to Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw the glory and the two men standing with them. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter, as, excuse me, as, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud, saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Now, I don't know if you're... Where, what, do you see any glowing difference between these? How many see a glowing difference? You should raise your hand. Simple. How many days did it take them to get there? Mark and Matthew. And then how, you know, Luke says eight. So this is a very classic um, verse that's used to discredit the, all, the whole New Testament. <laughs> the whole New Testament. And there's not a lot of them that can do that, like this, this powerful one can. Um, I'm saying this greatly with tongue in cheek. But Mark, the, the simple explanation seems to be Calvin made this all the way back in the um, Reformation period when he said that this explanation seems to be pretty simple, that in Matthew and Mark, he described the number of days it took them to get to the mountain <coughs> with Luke, he gave the whole duration of the time that took him to get there and the two days that they were on the mountain. And so we have eight versus six. Um, if you want to argue past that, then, you know, go somewhere else. I don't want to hear it. Okay, I'm just trying to, you know, put this in your hand for you. And it's, um, it, you know, it is interesting how when you have something called a difference, you consider it's not a difference, it's an error. 
The difference, the way two people described it. And Luke even said, about eight days later. Luke is writing his gospel in the very end of the gospel writing period. He wasn't a disciple directly following Jesus. There's a lot of reasons why his, his, his <coughs> same use of the sayings of Jesus are, are dissimilar to the others in their context. And that's because he is speaking to a different audience. Matthew's speaking to an audience, Jewish audience, and Mark is speaking to a Greek audience, and Luke is speaking to a Gentile audience. And so the three of them, you see, speaking to their audience in a way, their audience is going to grasp who Jesus is and what the message of the gospel is. But when you take these things from a distance and you put them together, distance and time, you put them together, and you say, you lay them over as if they're a template of one another, you either do one of two things. You say, there's errors here because the templates don't match. Or you can say, these aren't errors. These are the way in which the gospel writer presented his, his, his um, message or his gospel, the glad tidings, to his audience. And I think you'll find the second was much more satisfying for the first. Um, if exact precision on a, a things laying over top of each other is true, then you know, we wouldn't be able to even communicate most of the time. How many of you have heard a good joke, can't remember the whole joke, but so you start, making, you start telling the joke and all you remember is the punchline. So you kind of make up the first part and finally, does anybody laugh? They say, oh, stop, that's not funny. It's not exactly like the first one. No, it would be silly to do that or tell a story. You know, I hear my, all my brothers and my sister and I get together once, once in a while and sitting around talking about the old stories. And so... Um, we used to say, oh, that's, not, that's not what happened. You know? and now we just say, well, the way I saw it was, and, then you, and it's just as funny when the second person says the first. In fact, it adds some humor to it. It expands it. It illuminates it. So as a result, we see this same kind of thing taking place. Um, if, our, if our expectation or, or our, our rule is that the Gospels are identical, if you start there, they're identical because they're the synoptic gospels should be identical. So if you find dissimilarities, you found a weakness. Now you simply see the gospel's communication coming forth in a little bit different way. And so I think that's important to see that on a hermeneutical basis. You know, uh, uh, the principles of interpreting the scripture. Um, it, has an, it has very little to do with the substance of the story, but I wanted to take a moment just to highlight that again. And now we've highlighted that in the past. So after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a mountain where they were all alone. Now I have heard, in fact, there have been times when I have said that Jesus had circles of leadership and that he had Peter, James, and John. He had the 12. He had the 70. He had the 300. And then the rest, the multitude. But within those circles, he had a relationship with all those circles, but it was not a relationship that was as close from the standpoint of a working daily relationship from one to the other. Well, I wonder if you asked any of the other disciples, did they feel like they were in the second tier? 
One person actually made the case that John was his number one guy. He sat next to him at the Last Supper. He leaned on his chest. He was the one who said, Jesus, who is it that has betrayed you? And Jesus basically said, everybody here. Everybody's betrayed me. He didn't just single out someone. He didn't. And so, so the idea of, of three tiers or two tiers, I mean, some profound people, the teachers, make this case. And after they make it, I say, boy, that... No wonder these disciples were arguing all the time about who, wants, who was the greatest among them. I wonder if Peter, James, and John said, we're not even going to participate in this conversation. We're just going to go over here because we know we're the top three guys. So you guys can just fight out who's the greatest among you. We know we're the greatest. So Peter says, hey, hey, how come you spoke to John that way and we all spoke some other way to me? He says that in the last chapter of Gospel of John. So Peter and John obviously had some kind of an under, under, under the table problem with who's the greatest, right? I mean, where's that lead us to? It's like this song we sang today. Give us clean hands and a pure heart and a soul not lifted up unto vanity. Who you think about when you sing that song? Me. Give me clean hands. Give me a pure heart and a soul not lifted up unto vanity. It comes from the 24th chapter of Psalms, doesn't it? Who has, who's he talking about in the 24th chapter of Psalms? Who has the clean hands? and the pure heart, and the soul not lifted up on vanity. Who can have that? Speaking of Christ, He is our clean hands. He is our pure heart. He is one who's not lifted up on the vanity. We take our boast in Christ. We don't put it in ourselves. And just to put this idea that these three are the top three tiered guys, it almost immediately puts a competition in it as if, there's somebody without Jesus. More than likely, and I think it's a simple answer rather than a complex answer, we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, where it says, In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And it's repeated in Matthew chapter 18 under the chapter of forgiveness chapter. That when you go to try to restore a brother, take two or three others with you. So that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word can be established. It's a simple principle. Jesus wanted to have a human witness to something was going to happen. It was going to have such an impact on the persons that were with him that he was going to have such an impact that he needed witnesses, these witnesses to witness this and to make a declaration of it. He didn't stop being glorified. He didn't stop being the, the Holy One. It wasn't just on the mountain where he was Jesus Christ. It was all, always. And so as a result, when they're on this mountain, Peter, James, and John was on a high mountain. They're all alone. There, it says he was transfigured before them. I, I appreciate that text you used during communion, Roger. It's one that I was also going to highlight, since you've done it already, I think it's great. The, the, the visions of men who went to heaven. Well, let's put it this way. They had a vision of heaven. They were taken up into a vision of heaven. You see, Isaiah had this. In the New Testament, Apostle Paul had this. 
taken up into a vision of heaven to where they didn't even know whether it was real or not real. They didn't know if they, it was them or somebody else. It was just such an anomaly, such an outside-of-myself kind of experience. It tells us here that when they were at the top of this mountain, it's there he was transfigured before them. A brief description of his clothing becoming dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Just that little simple phrase, you see the, the brightness of God, the overwhelming glory of God being de defined by brightness, by whiteness. There's also what John saw in heaven, the crimson, the lamb that was slain. Literally, the blood of is there. These things become so understandable. That it blows our brains. Something becomes so real, so, so in front of us, so, when I say real, I mean present. Someone tells you something, they're just telling you a story that something happened to them and you say, that's hard to believe. Why? Because it didn't happen to you. But God's presence, just His presence to be revealed causes men to shudder. And women, leave the whole thing about the women, okay, causes us to shudder. Literally, cause us to come apart, Jeremiah said. I'm coming apart. John was so overwhelmed by the whole thing that he, because he couldn't understand what he was seeing. And so he starts trying to define it. And he, he does it in all these terms that are things we know to try to, to, try to describe something we don't know. The scripture says, eye has not seen or ear heard or mind conceived what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. And we start you know, horsing around with that whole thing of what heaven's going to be like. Well, we're all going to be standing around. Well, can you understand what standing around is like? That's not what's happening in heaven. I can conceive of that. But oh, it's going to be really beautiful. Well, what's the definition of beauty right now? Oh, it's like a waterfall. It's like a sunset. It's like a... There's nothing in heaven that's like here. This was created by a God to show His glory in this context. We don't take this times a million and you get heaven. Jesus is a person among persons that are the one God. What would omnipotence look like? All power. Would it look like a, some kind of fountain and out of this fountain was coming whatever power looks like? What would that look like? I'm not trying to do it, by the way. I'm not trying to show you what it looks like. I'm just using words and asking questions. What would it look like to see omnipotence? What would it look like to see omnipresence? What would it look like to see all knowledge? What would it look like to see an unchanging being? And we, go, we can just go through the attributes and ask ourselves those questions, and each one of us causes us to just come to a place of awe. Not understanding, not grasping, just literally just awe, which is the definition of awe. It's the speechless praise. You can, you can experience it in worship, can't you? When we come in a place of worship, you know, the words get to us. Some people say, the words get to me. 
When we really are in awe, we're not sure what's getting to us. We're just kind of emoting about it. And here there's these three beings. As Jesus is transfigured, the word transfigured means the morphosis. It's changing form. It's showing form. Or it's a cross form. What would that mean? When you see his what, what, what discloses the presence of the Word of God visibly is two things. First of all, the Word of God, the second member of the Trinity, is a spirit, therefore he can't be seen. But somehow he is, what I heard someone say this one time, that, that God cannot be seen, but it has no bearing on you seeing him. <laughs> no, I mean, your eyes can't see him. But he reveals himself through his spirit to our spirit, doesn't he? Our souls filled. My soul is overwhelmed, we hear in the scriptures. And here these three persons are standing there. And he's describing as clothes became dazzling white. The humanity. Of course, Christ didn't have sin in his humanity. But just the view of humanity is the assumption of sin. There's nobody that you should look at and think, oh, they don't have, they, they don't have any sin in them. No, we, we all are sinners. But here is this whiteness, this purity. You see dazzling them as they are in the presence. You know, I, I saw God. No, but of course you can't see God. But when you come into his presence... There's fullness, it says in Psalms. And it calls it fullness of joy. In thy presence is fullness of joy. And so our companionship or communion with Him, recognizing the reality of Him, is something that puts us on our heels because He is so unlike us. And there's a blindingness to Him. When they threw that net over the side, Jesus said to throw it over to it, and it was filled with fish. Why is it Peter fell on his face and said, Lord, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. The idea of coming apart in the presence of God himself. And in some incredible way, this dazzling white, this whiter than, than anyone could even bleach something, that his clothes, it says, the things that surrounded him, they took a whole new nature. You know, one day we're going to have clothes we're not going to be naked in heaven we're going to be clothed in the same dazzling perfectly white robe of Christ's righteousness we're going to be given a small stone with our true name on it and they're very close to that reality. They're experiencing that reality on that mountain. Well, I could keep trying, couldn't I? He was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared with him, or before him, Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Now, much is made over the Elijah and Moses thing. Um, I think we should see it in its 
simplest complexity. Moses, the person who brought us the law. Elijah is a representative of the prophets. In his epistle, Peter said that the production of revelation we have now, in fact, I remember saying this last night, you know, sometimes we, we really have a sense that we're going to get touched or, you know, spoken to or something like that, and you kind of get this little feeling, you know. And, uh, and, and so I, I kind of had that last night because my wife is up in New York and I'm all by myself. I'm just a big sissy, right? I, want, I need my mommy. <laughs> and so I got up to go to the restroom because I was coming back and I had the lights out. I felt kind of feeling kind of weird. So it's like, oh, don't touch me, God, or any of the way you already do. Because, you know, after you study this kind of stuff, you start kind of getting freaked. And so I got in the bed, and then as I got in the bed, I said, we have a, I pulled my covers over like that, I said, we have a more sure revelation of the Holy Scriptures. A more sure witness than the prophets. A more sure witness than Moses. The Scriptures, all Scripture are given by inspiration of God and are profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We have a greater witness than Moses and Elijah. They talked to Jesus. We don't know what the conversation's about. We're completely left in the, they're in the light, we're in the dark. About why Elijah and Moses, let's don't spend much more time on it because boy, a lot of people spend a lot of time with it. We're talking with Jesus. We don't know what they're talking about. I think it might have sounded like praise and honor, glory and dominion, power. One. But on the other side, we have these three dynamic top-tier guys. Peter said to Jesus, the same Peter that said to him, Thou art the Messiah. And then <coughs> later when Jesus described he was going to be taken to Jerusalem, he was going to suffer, and he was going to die, and he was going to be raised from the dead. And he takes him aside and starts rebuking him. This is never going to happen to you, Lord. Now think of that. He's actually telling the Lord he's not going to die for our sins and be raised to show the power of God over Sin and the triumph of the grave. Death. I mean, think about it. You, you couldn't say anything more anti-Christ than that. Yet he sees Christ, but then he becomes anti-Christ. And Jesus tells him that. He says, get behind me, Satan. Well, he didn't do too good on that one, did he? Now here he is again. And he appeared before them. Elijah, in verse 5, he, Peter said to Jesus... Rabbi, it's really good that we're here. It's good that we're here. Let us put up three shelters, three booths or three tabernacles. Let us put up three booths or three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. <laughs> Obviously, he says, the footnotes, he didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> because they are so frightened. I want to say something. But what did he miss? What, can you imagine if Jesus says, well, of course you want to put up three tabernacles. You know, one for Moses and Elijah. Where do you think they just came from? 
You think anything you can build would even compare to what I've built where they are? Anything that you can do to honor them and lift them up is going to do any more they already honored and lifted up? Jesus didn't waste his time, did he? But the, but the insight of the carnal insight that you memorialize something. You memorialize it by a building or you memorialize it by a, a statue or, or a, a, a writing or a poem or whatever it is. You memorialize it in order to give credit to the person that experienced something at that place. Isn't it strange that you can't really find any of the altars that Moses, that all those, all the patriarchs, they built altars all the time, all the time, making altars for wells. Um, Abraham did it next to a cave when his, where, where he buried his wife. Altars, all the time making altars. Can't even find them anymore. Why is it they're not there? Because if they were there, there'd be shrines on them and people be worshiping the person who once touched that. Trying to steal the rocks, take them home so you have more power at home. We memorialize these events. We, we think how they're so wonderful that, that, that everything we ever wanted, we experienced for that moment at that event. And then it says, a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Read it with me. Listen to him. Say it again. Listen to him. Jesus has already told them the full nature of his mission. His message is in his mission, but he told them the message of his mission, and he told them the, the substance of what was going to happen. They're seeing it, taking and observing it, seeing it take place. And then right in the, in, the, in the response to that is to say something completely as if you didn't even hear him. That was something common. We said it would be an interesting study to go see how many things Jesus said that they then repeated, and it wasn't anything like what he said. A cloud covered them. They were enveloped in a cloud. They couldn't see. They couldn't see. Now, the Bible says no man has seen God and lived. No man can see God because God is a spirit. They that worship him, worship him, spirit and truth. You can't see God. You can't see him. John tried to describe what he was seeing in heaven. It sounded like something, something out of this world, but by, to, by things that you have in this world to describe these things that are out of this world. But they were enveloped by this cloud. It covered them. It appears that in was it Luke's gospel that they fell asleep up there, kind of fell asleep. Some people think this was the earliest being slain in the spirit. And they fell down. That's a text that actually is used as a proof text for falling down, being slain in the spirit. It doesn't say they were slain in the spirit anywhere, but sometimes that's not necessary to start a behavior. But this voice, it covered them. It started, it was next to them. It caused them not to be able to see anything. But in the midst of this covering by this voice, now they're all on the ground because they fell down, but they hear this voice. 
It comes from the cloud. And it says, listen to him. I believe that word right there was not for this time as they're sitting there because they were deaf spiritually. They were blind spiritually. They hear words, but the words don't mean anything to them. Peter, even through his own mouth, says words that he doesn't know what he's saying. And John repeats again and again in his Gospel, no one knew what that meant then, but after his resurrection, we all knew what it meant. These are literally tools that are being placed before the disciples for later. Isn't that a pretty profound revelation to receive? Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. When a person hears and does something different, they really didn't listen. But when we listen and we do, we show that we're truly someone who has received something, understood something, found the point of something, listened to him. And so they go up on a mountain, they see this transfiguration, and all these things take place. They want to build three tabernacles. It's kind of like, we want to be here forever. We want to be on this mountain forever with you and Moses and you, Lord. Let's sit your feet, all, through, all six feet. It'll sit for them. Suddenly, Mark's word, he uses it over and over again. Suddenly, when they looked around, the cloud was gone. They're on top of a mountain. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. And they're sitting there on the top of this mountain, and there's no one there except Jesus. This is the place of transfiguration. It's the place that they, for the rest of their lives, they communicated that back. Paul talked, I mean, Peter talked about being on the holy mountain. The holy mountain. Paul talked about his revelation over and over again. This place where he went up to heaven. Not sure what kind, where heaven it was. Not sure where I was or if I was really in heaven. But I was a man. There was, maybe it was me. I'm not sure. But it touched him profoundly, and it touched them profoundly. We see that from their writings. We see that from their actions in the future. Every one of these persons died a martyr's death, being offered life to recant the words of Jesus. But once you hear his voice, that's the only voice you hear. In verse 9, it says, as they were coming down the mountain... Let's just stop right there for a moment. You know, it's, um, it's not uncommon. Well, I, it's not uncommon for many Christians <coughs> to have a mountaintop experience. Anybody say, classify your walk with God at some point you had a mountaintop experience, something really dynamic that happened to you? Even a time frame was dynamic and wonderful, and just like being in heaven? Did you build a tabernacle there in your mind? Did you build a 
altar there, a shrine there? Is that something you look on this time and you look back on that time and think, I wish it could be like that? I wish my life now could be like that? I love Oswald Chambers. My utmost for his highest. If you've never heard of that devotional, you should try to get it. It's a really excellent one. Karen and I, we read it for 10 years, year after year after year after year. My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. And he has this one, it's from this text, Coming Down from the Mountain, it's called. And he, and he makes the phrase, statement, mountaintops are places where we see such glorious things, but we must be taught to come down from the mountains rather than look for the next mountain or try to stay on a mountain or try to reproduce the mountain. God is ever-present. You know, if He appears to us in the past in some way, it just blew our minds, it just changed our lives, everything was wonderful then. I wish it could be that way now. I wish I could be there now. We find, we find we're basically building altars. All, idols, excuse me. Idols. God is a God of today. Today is the sal- day of salvation, Paul declared. Hear you this day. For repentance, even now, God says, if you repent. So many references to the present, but yet we get so lost and caught up in the past to the point where we just can't do without the idea that one day it's going to be like it was. Someone I was speaking to about our our project we're here doing together our church at this time. And they were, they said this to me. So you're admitting you just wasted your time for 20 years. I wasn't ready for that, but the Holy Spirit was. I said, we have not wasted a second. We have taken the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and we have parted it again and again and again, and we've taken our lives and we've given them to Jesus Christ in His service. We've learned wonderful things like faithfulness, like patience, like hope. We haven't built an altar. We haven't tried to build a shrine. Try to be faithful to the living God in this hour with the things He gives us to do and to say. I, for one, have accomplished, nearly accomplished, one of the goals I made for my life back in 1985 when I graduated from seminary. Sitting in a group, a study group, eight other guys. I'd gone for the whole three years I was there. Every Wednesday we went and talked to a professor. Um, we talked to him about our lives, talked about our, our grades, we talked about our studies, we talked about our frustrations, our families, blah, 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 anything you want to talk about. So the last day, here we are, we're getting ready to graduate and leave the school and saying, what do you want? What do you, what do you guys hope is going to happen here? Well, I'm going to go and I'm going to start a church. I'm going to do some church planning. And I'm, gonna, I'm hoping this and I'm hoping that and hoping this other thing. And I didn't know really where I was going right then. I didn't know where I was going to go. But I said, my goals for that you're asking about, it's going to take about 25 years. 25 years. I want to preach through the entire New Testament 
verse by verse, and much of the Old Testament verse by verse. And that's going to take a long time. And this church and the church we started in Germantown 13 years, I started on that project. And it's occurred. And you've been part of much of it. As we've looked verse by verse, verse by verse, through whole texts of scriptures. And we've learned to love the word. Not try to just find something that works. When it comes to the word of God, we're not trying to find something that works. We're not trying to find something that makes something grow. We're not trying to find a way to build something like a monument or something like that. When it comes to the word of God, we're the object of the growth. We're the recipient of the blessings of the Word of God. And that takes time. That takes time. We have to listen to Jesus. And if you start saying, I'm going to listen to Jesus, don't think you're going to do that in five seconds. Don't think you're going to be able to do that on a mountaintop someplace. Jesus spoke to me. Well, yeah. But he speaks to us on the mountain, and he speaks to us coming down from the mountain, and he speaks to us in the plain. He speaks to us through the trouble, some through the fire, and some through the flood, some through the water, but all through the blood. That's how he speaks to us. And we understand more and more and more what three people that were there with him didn't understand. Not that we would have understood if we had been there like them, but we have the benefit of this wonderful blessing of the word to see the possibilities and the glory of what God's word reveals. Well, just one more verse here. Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. There he goes again. (laughs) Too much information, Lord. (laughs) And these three, it says, they kept the matter to themselves, discussing. Now you think, are you sure that was Moses? How did you know that was Moses? That's one of the things commentaries ask. How did they know it was Moses? Because the Holy Spirit told us it was via the inspiration that brought this book about. Well, how does he know? (laughs) What about... Elijah. How do they know it was Elijah? Why Elijah? Why not Isaiah? Why not Jeremiah? Or one of the prophets? Why? Why Elijah? Well, then you get 15 pages later, they show why Elijah is probably the best pick. They weren't talking about that. They were talking about this thing of rising from the dead. Why is rising from the dead so important? And from their position... They didn't see any way in the world anybody could kill Jesus. How could they kill him? He's raised other people from the dead. He's healed other people. He has power. Because they're uninitiated. They're keeping this matter to themselves, I guess the three, discussing what rising from the dead meant. I can tell you one thing they found out that it doesn't mean, and that is it doesn't mean it doesn't doesn't mean anything. 
Because when Jesus had said, finished saying these, when Peter told him, rebuked him and said, that's never going to happen to you, he turned around and said, you're speaking from Satan's lips and power. Well, there's much to say. And much to follow. But listening to Jesus, listening to his word, hiding it in our hearts, making a decision that I'm going to bring God's word into my heart, that I'm going to be a receptacle for his word, so that when someone asks me a question, I'm going to be ready to answer that question with the hope that lies within me. Ultimately, Jesus commissioned his disciples to go out and tell people what they had heard him say. Well, I'm not an evangelist. I don't have a problem with this. I don't really do this very well. Well, I'll tell you what, you need to listen more to Jesus. I have people tell me about the best movie they ever saw. Oh, I just saw the best movie I ever saw. I said, I've seen that. That's not that great. The best thing of this, and the best, went to the best restaurant. I went to this, everything's best. I tell you, tell you, tell you, tell you. People tell you about everything I do, everything. What they taste, what they eat, what they go, what someone said. Somebody, I don't like that person over there, you know. You know, the one over there sitting over there, look at that. They'll come and say, I wish it was only them. See that person sitting back there on the third row? <laughs> but a big nose. <laughs> what is Jesus saying to us? What are you telling people about Jesus? Well, much of it is because we're not really sure what he's saying. Well, let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, this is a close. If you don't have a relationship to this, you will not have a relationship to the living God that this reveals. That's the problem today. We've lost our relationship with the living God because we have lost relationship with the Word that reveals Him to us. I don't care if you read one page a day. I don't care if you read ten, page, ten, ten pages a day. I don't care if you read ten words a day. And listen, you'll have something to talk about. You'll have something to say. You will. I'm going to leave it there today. God bless you. Thanks for your prayers, too, by the way. Appreciate that. And I, um, hopefully this doesn't catch anybody else, this disease I have, whatever it is. So God bless you. God bless you. Father, I pray that we will be fruitful people. We'll be fruitful people, Lord. Hide the word in our hearts. That we may not, not sin against God. That's not enough. Hide the word in our hearts so we can speak it to put on the full armor of God. It says the sword of the Spirit, 
which is the Word of God. May we listen to it. Take up our cross daily and follow the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.